1: Here is Biblical Citizen. Let's roll.
2: Hello, Biblical Citizens. What does it mean to practice a biblical worldview in today's world, especially with so many strange things going on in the government, in the churches, and in our lives that perhaps have never been faced before, these kinds of problems that we're facing today? With us today is P. Andrew Sandlin. He's founder and president of the Center for Cultural Leadership. He's an ordained minister, a cultural theologian, committed to applying historic biblical Christianity in the contemporary world. He specializes in philosophy and theology, sociopolitical science, and the history of ideas. He's married and has five adult children and three grandchildren. We're so happy to have you with us today. Pastor Sandlin, welcome.
3: Well, thank you, Kathleen. It's great to uh, talk to both of you, and um, great to hear about your important program.
2: Well, I'm glad to hear that. Let's get right to our topic, because this is so important and so relevant to our theme of our show, even. And so that is, what exactly is a biblical worldview?
3: And how- well, uh, worldview uh, comes from the German word, uh, Weltanschauung, and it, it's really easy to understand. Uh it means what it sounds like, that is a view of the world. Uh, all of us view the world in a particular way, and that's shaped by uh, strongly by our beliefs, our experience, and so on. Uh, not just uh, sort of higher thinking, science and uh, matters like that, theology, but everything. Going to the grocery store and uh, what we're going to eat and how we're going to travel. That's part of our, our worldview. Well, uh, worldviews, by the way, are inescapable. Uh, I like to say the worldviews are like pancreases. Everybody has one, whether you know it or not. Uh, so, so a biblical worldview is a view of the world that's shaped by an understanding of the Bible. Uh, and, of course, by the Holy Spirit, as he opens up the truth to us, and uh, also by our participation in a good church, those are very important also. But fundamentally, a biblical worldview is a worldview shaped by the Bible.
2: Uh, and it's really the see. lens through which you see everything,
3: right? So, uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Every, every single thing. The biblical worldview, a summary of it could be creation, fall, redemption. Uh, God created everything very good and created man and woman, but they fell and led the race into sin. And, of course, God put his plan into place, which he always knew, and that is redemption through uh, Jesus Christ. And he's restoring man and the entire earth so that sin and Satan don't win so that he and his kingdom went. Interpreting all of life in terms of that is, in summary form, a a biblical worldview.
2: And sometimes, well, we've heard you give a talk on that Christians tend to emphasize restoration and, and redemption, but not creation. They somehow lose that and the cultural mandate that you talk about. Explain that.
3: Yeah, the cultural mandate is actually man's fundamental calling in the world. We read about it, right, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27, 28 through 30, to exercise godly, benevolent dominion in the earth. Uh, We might want to say that uh, man is God's deputy. God, of course, is sovereign over all things, but as it were, he puts the deputy star on the chest of man. (laughs) That's a good analogy. And man is called to rule in the earth under God's authority. Now, I want to say and emphasize again, this is man's fundamental calling. I mean, it's right there in Genesis 1. So uh, God's people, godly people, if they are to please God, must fulfill this cultural mandate taking godly dominion in the earth.
4: Well, I like it, uh, Andrew, that you, in your talks and in your writings, you talk about some of the competing ideas where – We Christians can go into error. I'd like to take two of those that you mentioned. Those are escapism and pietism. And actually, in the interest of time, I'm going to try to—I know these aren't exactly the same, but they're similar. So the belief that it's okay to compartmentalize or privatize Christian belief—a lot about what we talk about on this show is Christians should be about victory over evil, which is what you're uh, already talking about— not escaping from it, and that includes the public square. So could you explain some of the consequences of pastors and fellow believers engaging in pietism or escapism?
3: Yeah, that's a great question, Brian. Uh, They've developed the idea, really popular in the West over the last 150 years, that the highest form of Christian faith is a highly internal form. Uh, that is our personal, private, we would say, relationship to God, our prayer in the mornings, our quiet time reading the Word, and of course, those are vital. And at most, attending church, in hearing a sermon about how we can be closer to the Lord and perhaps getting a few more people in the church converted, all of those are good. However, uh, that really negates uh, a large part of Christian responsibility. Uh, we claim to believe, Brian, in the Lordship of Jesus Christ over all things if you ask a Christian, is there any area of life over which Jesus is not Lord? Presumably, they'll say, well, no, I guess Jesus is Lord of everything. But if they're pietists and quietists and privatizers and on and on, they don't really live that way. And therefore, to apply the faith in education and in politics and in science and in issues like uh, abortion and so-called same-sex marriage and the LGBTQ agenda and so-called Build Back Better, and socialistic schemes, and the um, uh, economic lockdowns, COVID economic lockdowns, and the enforced political vaccine mandates, and of course, I could go on and on, couldn't I? They will yeah. say, well, I'm glad that there are folks out there like Brian and Kathleen. I'm glad some folks do that, but that's not really what being a Christian is all about. The true Christians are concerned with sort of a private, warm, personal relationship with God. But I would like to say that from Genesis 1 and the rest of the Word of God, that these latter things we talked about are just as important as the form. God put us here to be deputies on the earth, and if we're not fulfilling those obligations, then we're not being the Christians that he's called us to be.
2: We really agree with that. And it just goes along with the saying, all it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And that's what we've seen. So if, if Christians are hiding in their churches and just being pietistic and and having warm, fuzzy feelings, that is not a Christian mandate, and evil will triumph. And so you talk about victory over evil, and of course the Scripture says, overcome evil with good. Uh, so just talk about that a little bit.
3: Yeah, that's, uh, it's very interesting that some of these same Christians, uh, well all of them, believe in the importance of Christ's death. He died on the cross for our sins. But if we read the Colossians 2, for example, and then Hebrews 1 and Ephesians 1, don't have time to go into all of the text, you can look them up. He didn't only die to take away our sins individually, to take us to heaven. He died actually to reverse what happened in the Garden of Eden. Well, what happened in the Garden of Eden is man and, uh, man and woman, man, Adam and Eve, fell and they plunged the entire human race into sin. And, of course, that brought all of creation, though creation itself didn't sin. It colluded with man. So the creation itself is under a curse. Well, what the cross did is definitively turn back the curse, and gradually in history, with the expansion of Christ's kingdom, based on his atoning death and resurrection, that curse is being turned back. But if you are a quietist, a pietist, a privatizer, you will limit Christ's death, the effects of Christ's death, the sort of individual soteriology, soteriology of salvation doctrine. That is, that Jesus died just to save me and save a number of others, and we'll all go to heaven when we die. Well, it's true that we will, but we have a responsibility on earth to extend His kingdom rule, and that's what's missed by a lot of Christians today.
4: Yeah, we need we need pastors, we need theologians to apply discernment, and and believers, fellow believers as well. Now, in one and the hard another work ta- of thinking, the hard work <laughs> of thinking <laughs> that it takes. So in one talk we heard you give, Andrew, you say that, and this is really going to touch on some folks, uh, maybe a hot button, but you say that Democrats used to have some ideas in line with God's Word, and I agree with that. But today, their platform and policies are pretty much actively opposed to Christ. Could you elaborate Boy, on that a little yeah. bit?
3: Yeah, that's true. I'm old enough to remember. I was just a child when uh, during the JFK presidency but if you think about him obviously a very flawed man but he was pro-life and he was pro-family despite his own personal sexual failures nonetheless he believed in the family and he believed as a roman catholic in in protecting life he even believed in tax cutting yeah well today the, today and there are other democrats by the way um, today the democratic party is wholly given over to economic socialism it's wholly given over to uh, Black Lives Matter, which is not about making Black Lives Matter, but is pushing a, a neo marxist agenda, wholly given over to uh, sexual perversity and uh, androgyny and such like that, things like that, wholly given over to these oppressive status lockdowns. So it is not possible, in my view, and I'm willing to be corrected here, to know, of, uh, I don't know of a single national or even state Democrat, prominent national or state Democrat that doesn't support those views. I mean, the Democratic Party is wholly given over to apostasy, which is not to say all of the Republicans are fine. It's just that there there is a basis of biblical truth among some of the Republican Party, not in the Democratic Party.
2: So it seems to us that Christians really should be actively opposing these anti-Christian mandates and dangerous things that are in our culture now. It's hard to even know which things are most important to impose you know some say we got to protect the freedom of speech that's the most important thing because with that without that we lose everything else including the chance to preach the gospel and then you know there's these medical freedom mandates that are yes you know dangerously hurting people too and causing them their jobs or even forcing, their
4: lives forcing little so, kids to get vaccinated <laughs> oh, yeah. or they don't get to go to school so, so um, yes.
2: and then there's so many other other things, the family, education, election integrity. I mean, it's almost hard to set the priority. What do you think?
3: Yeah, good question. I think the key here, the principle in the Bible and Paul's epistles is there's one body, but many parts. So each role has a part to play. So some groups will be um, be more gifted in uh, defending uh, medical freedom, some in specific legal freedoms and the freedom of speech in the church, and some on issues opposing uh, the LGBT agenda and pressing the family. Some standing for pro-life so everybody has a gift my main point here no single christian or organization can defend everything but all of us should be standing for the truth in the public square somewhere
2: absolutely and that's what we say we we say to pick one cause and really get involved in that
3: right i
4: want to continue with that after our break but this is great stuff andrew we'll be right back with andrew sandlin founder of the center for cultural leadership
1: There is more Biblical Citizen, let's roll, still to come on K-Praise. Welcome back to Biblical Citizen, let's roll. Now, here are your hosts, Kathleen and Brian Milinakis on K-Praise.
4: We are back with Andrew Sandlin having a great discussion. Before we continue, and we got some great stuff to cover in the second half, Andrew, could you give your contact information if people want to get your weekly articles and and even support you?
3: Yeah, thanks so much, Brian, for that opportunity. Uh, The website is Christian Culture. That's written as though it were one word, christianculture.com. And my blog is Doc Sanlin. Again, one word, docsanlin.com. And then a weekly Substack um, article comes out virtually every week. Uh, You can just do a search on Substack.com for culture change or just my name. P. Andrew Sandlin, and you can also check iTunes uh, for all sorts of podcasts, and you can do a search for my uh, YouTube channel. Just put my name in there, P. Andrew Sandlin, or Center for Cultural Leadership, and you can find, find all that. And finally, have an Amazon author page. You can go just go to Amazon, P. Andrew Sandlin, and you'll find a bunch of book titles, both hard copy and digital. I'm out of breath now.
4: That's fantastic. We still have a, we still have a couple minutes left no that you are ever you are you are everywhere. Well on your on Excellent. your website, yeah. uh, I enjoyed reading your article. It was called this was just before Christmas I think. Your lunch isn't free, but market should be. And what I really like about that and I think this is missed by so many of us you know who consider ourselves conservatives and free market proponents. What we miss talking about is the moral superiority of a free market system. You state economic systems aren't basically about charts or numbers, but about human Mm -hmm. life, and specifically about the kind of humans we should be. So I found that intriguing. Could you talk about that a little bit? I majored in
2: economics, by the way. I
4: majored in economics, but we didn't study that one. We didn't study that part of it. So could you elaborate on that a little bit?
3: Yeah, that's right. Well, a lot of the critics of the free market say that, well, the problem with capitalism, it just appeals to greedy people, and all people care about is just making money, and they don't care about other individuals. And uh, sadly, a lot of capitalists defend it uh, totally, that system totally on utilitarian grounds. Well, it just creates money, uh, which people need. Well, that's true, but the fact is, if you'll think about it, Genesis 1, we talked about the cultural mandate, man needs a great deal of freedom in order to execute that mandate. Well, that includes economic freedom. He has to be able to use resources. I think at a more fundamental level though, if you think about it, essentially capitalism is based on this premise. If you do something good for me, I'll do something good for you. Socialism is, unless you do something good for me, I'll do something bad to you.
4: (laughs) That's a good comparison, yeah.
3: Yeah. (laughs) It is. Capitalism forces cooperation. I like to say that the wealthiest CEO in the United States, multi-billionaire must live as a servant because if he doesn't serve people, if he doesn't produce a product or a service that people want to buy, then he's going to start losing. So the wealthiest man must be a servant. The, the, the free market system turns us all into servants working for others.
2: Well, it and contract makers, right? I mean, you a make contract, a free contract exactly. with someone.
3: Exactly. Yeah. Think about this. this. And that's another aspect of virtue. It forces us to keep promises. Now uh-huh. do capitalists break promises? Well of course, a so socialist break promises even more. But the point is the system, baked into the system, is the fact that if it works, people have to on a handshake or on a signature, they have to say, We're going to do this, we're going to agree. It also, by the way, can tend to create friendships or at least good acquaintances. All of us know people, they say, Oh, I met a friend. I met somebody that's now a friend. Why? Well, he delivered bread to my house, or I went to the grocery and bought something and i met a salesman or a saleswoman, as the case may be. It's a wonderful system.
4: That's now, another thing that is being so suppressed, or the recognition that commerce, like you say, it tends to enhance community. Uh, what do we generally hear today? Capitalism creates doggy dog competition, especially in our universities. It turns people into rivals with each other, but that's really trying to emphasize a a, a dark side isn't it
2: and can i say something about technology technology is is interfering with human relationships that we used to have like you just order something from a meaningless website that you don't know the people you know i used to be a shopper and and like the one-to-one personal interaction like let's not lose that right
3: no that's Uh, no that's that's absolutely correct it's uh They're talking about the dog-eat-dog. It's ironic when I hear people criticize capitalism and that it creates a dog-eat-dog society. If you want to see a dog-eat-dog society, check out the old Soviet Union (laughs) or Communist China. That's where people are constantly reporting on one another, turning on one another for every last scrap. The free market system tends to generate wealth, and wealth is a good thing. Can wealth be misused? Of course it can. Any virtue can be misused. But wealth is a good thing, and God gave it to us as a blessing for faithful obedience, so we can do a better job of stewarding the earth for his glory.
2: And I think of socialism as just legalized theft at the point of a gun. Well,
1: I
4: just, I can't believe I haven't, I wasn't planning on mentioning this, but I'm reading the famous book Gulag Archipelago. I've never read it before. I've just read about it, but it's frightening First of all, it emphasizes that no man is not basically good. The Bible was right about that, funny thing, because it wasn't just Stalin. It wasn't just a few people at the top. What was shocking is that system created hundreds of thousands and even millions of local petty tyrants that committed unspeakable brutalities against people they knew in their own towns. And any system... That can create that kind of hell can't be coming from anywhere else but the uh, father of lies.
3: Now, that's true. And uh, even in socialistic systems that are more, quote, benevolent it's Sweden right. and elsewhere, still there is a degree of malevolence in that system. And uh, it's, it's based on a number of fallacies. One of them is that uh, a centralized power, a few smart guys or gals, can get in a room and decide what prices should be. They can decide how the economy should be rigged. But the problem is one of human choice. I can't predict. The smartest people in the world in one room can't predict the economic decisions you and I are going to make a week from now. They can't predict what we're yeah. going to be willing to pay for a gallon of milk. Only we can do that as a point of sale. And that's what the free market's all about. It's multi-trillions of decisions around the world every day by free people. That's what socialism tends to try to revert, and that's how it destroys human life.
2: And that's why... When the economic forum, the world economic forum says, you're not going to own anything. We're going to own everything and decide everything, tell you what to eat, what to wear, what you're going to spend your money on. People should be aware of that and really opposing that. that it's morally wrong and it's going to create poverty and it's built on covetousness. Um, yes. this, this whole system. So talk about how, how does covetousness harm us in more than one way. I mean, it, it, it it's a commandment not to do that. So discuss that a little
3: bit. Yeah, no, 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 that's right. It's ironic that people say that the free market is based on covetousness. Actually, just the opposite is true. Uh, there are people, people that want centralized power in order to control other people's lives to create a special class. They're filled with covetousness and envy. Uh, a socialistic society is nourished in covetousness and envy. But that's not true of the free market. Are there covetous people within a free market? Well, of course so. But they don't have to be, and most of them aren't. Let's think about this for a minute. Here's a, a young father, and let's say he has a child. He wants to he wants to make more money. Well, let's think about it for a minute. Why? Because he's covetous. No, covetous, no. He wants to provide, let's say, for a wife, or there's a woman, Kathleen, we were mentioning you're a nurse. Maybe there's a, a single woman that she needs to support herself. She's not covetous. She wants to take care of basic needs and perhaps give to her church or to others. That's not covetous, no. the desire to make more money. But in socialism, it's rooted in covetousness. The attempt to create justice that a few, quote, bright people know what the just society is, and they will determine for everybody else, that is fundamentally dangerous and is destructive, and it has been wherever it has gone.
2: Yeah, hasn't it been— it's- been tried in 125 countries it's never it's always in various forms and and poverty and destitution and 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 we're we're designed to have freedom and the responsibility that comes with that god wants us to mature into responsible individuals doesn't
3: he that's right and that's people say well the problem with the free market is that people fail well that's good because we learn things from failing if you make make bad choices, economic choices, that can be painful. But that's good that it's painful. It teaches you to do better the next time. But when you have these sort of vast social safety nets, basically people can continue in very bad economic behavior, sometimes very simple behavior, and they never have to pay a price for it. That and that's the
2: problem. That's the problem with monopolies too. Is they're too big to yeah. fail, and everyone is uh, dependent on them. So it doesn't matter. You know you you. Right. They can't fail, and, and well, big so government. So you're at
4: their mercy. Big government is usually what. It's very difficult to have a monopoly in the private side unless they're linked in with the government. Right. That's right. What, the federal government, especially, has been hand in hand throughout the years creating a lot of big monopolies. That's a whole different point. But I, I love it that you again back to the original start of this uh, par- this topic is that. Is that free markets have a moral underpinning, and there's, it's, it's much easier to follow God's word in a socialist system. And I wasn't in a capitalist. On, in a, uh, yeah, wow, you got you got that right. Thank you. <laughs> I was starting to say much more difficult in a socialist system because if you look even at the Western European, as you say, so-called more benevolent socialist systems, the more socialist a country is typically the less active the Christian church is. And, and oh, well, I believe there's probably historical. a correlation. Yeah, oh Of course. I yeah, know. That's right. So we just have a few minutes left, Andrew. I'd like you to give you the opportunity to say any summary comments you would like, and I'll also review one more time at least on some of the major ways that people can contact, uh, get information from you.
3: Thanks, Brian and Kathleen. I'll summarize by saying this. If Jesus Christ is Lord, and all Christians should believe so, he's Lord of every area of life and thought, not just our individual lives, uh, not just our quiet time, not just our Bible reading and prayer, but also in education and in music and in entertainment and in economics and in politics, every area of life, Jesus Christ is Lord. And if that's the case, we should press his lordship on all of these areas of life and not sort of retreat to the interior. Not move, pull inward, but push outward to press the kingdom of God in all areas of life and thought, according, of course, not to man's ideas, but according to the word of God. So I'm P. Andrew Sandlin, uh, Center for Cultural Leadership. The website is ChristianCulture.com. That's written as one word. Or you can go to my blog, Doc Sandlin. Again, one word, DocSandlin.com. And uh, you can do a web search and find uh, the various other stuff that I produce.
2: Excellent! We are so honored to have you. Thanks for being with us. That's Andrew Sandlin, everybody, and the Center for Cultural Leadership.
4: Thanks uh, so much, and uh, man, we got to meet you in person and also yeah. have you on the show again. But have a uh, what? Do you mind saying what state you're in? By the way, I know you're traveling somewhere.
3: Yeah, Arizona today, New Mexico tomorrow, Texas the next day. I'm speaking at a couple of conferences in Texas on uh, the Kingdom of God in Corpus Christi in a couple of weeks, and then down in McAllen, Texas, just over, uh, uh, just near the border. So that's where I'll be. I hope you all pray for wow. me. Wow, those hope I people
4: are me. all blessed that they're going to hear yeah. from you. Thanks.
2: Look forward to meeting you sometime. Uh, and bye now. To bless your neighbor this week, sign up for free weekly, free weekly articles from Andrew Sandlin on his website, andrewsandlin.substack.com. Consider making a contribution to this most worthy cause. And once again, Biblical Citizens, let's roll.
1: Join us next Saturday at noon for Biblical Citizen. Let's roll. Your hosts, Brian and Kathleen Melanakis, seek to educate and activate Christians at a grassroots level, helping them to live out their responsibility to influence civic affairs for good. Next week, we will cover another major news happening from the view of the biblical citizen.